This is OTR-FM, part of the IOM Radio Network. Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome and joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books that influenced her the most on her life journey is spiritual teacher and author Bridget Finclair, a former Harley Street psychotherapist and hypnotherapist and a self-confessed growth junkie and wilderness lover, Bridget Finclair, there's a mouthful there. Bridget Finclair was born in Hampshire and lived in London for almost 30 years before moving to Cape Town, South Africa in 2012. An expert in space clearing, creating sacred space and a ghost buster. And I'm gonna ask her more about that one later. Bridget has studied and taught many spiritual disciplines and courses in intuition, creating meditation, healing and feng shui. And she currently facilitates a study group for the Book of Knowledge, The Keys of Enoch by Dr. J.J. Hertak. Bridget Finclair, welcome. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's lovely to be here. And now you say that you naively thought that you'd be able to choose 10 spiritual books and write about them in an afternoon. But yes. you were wrong. So tell us totally about wrong. that challenge. Well, I thought I'd go for this challenge. This sounds really interesting. And I've always been into spiritual books and often, you know, had had to get to far too many, get rid of far too many when I moved from England. So this is going to be easy. I'll just, the ones that stand out, I'll just write them down. Oh my goodness. I had to grapple and grapple and grapple because you realize that there's so many good spiritual books that have influenced your path and it's so difficult to choose which ones and then there's ones that you've forgotten about and I think it can only ever be a snapshot in time because immediately I'd actually finally written it the next day I was thinking what about the so-and-so book oh and I didn't include this or I didn't include that and I shouldn't maybe I should have changed this and so it's a snapshot in time for the day that I wrote it I think but it took a lot lot longer than I than I thought it would. Well I'm glad you persevered with it and what was interesting about your list is that uh you you mulled over certain titles that many people would expect to find on your list and uh, you chose something else entirely something not so well known so um, I think that's very you know interesting and it's quite refreshing to come across that so we'll talk about those um, a little bit later um, but tell us you know what do books mean to you I mean you said you had to get rid of loads before oh. you moved to South Africa. How hard was that? Very hard, very, very hard. I had bookcases lined with books and sometimes you think, oh, I'll never go back to that one, I'll get rid of it. And then a the minute you do, you, you find you want to look that some reference up. Um, so 
they'd been traveling with me, um, not as a child, actually. My parents were not great book lovers, so it was quite difficult for me as a child to get my hands on books. So it was only really when I left home that I started collecting books and reading much more widely. And of course, when I started the spiritual journey, it really kicked in and also lots of therapy books as well. But getting rid of, getting, having to get rid of them, it was a, one of those forced things. I was moving to South Africa, I had a suitcase when I first moved here. I rented out my flat in London. So I left sort of um, nice furniture and things for the new occupants. And I could only really keep a very small amount of personal things in my niece's loft. And books are heavy and they take up a lot of space. So that was really the, the rationale behind it. But all kinds of books that I let go of, cookery books, things like that, you know, the favorite recipe and you think, oh, that's in that book that I let go of. And, Oh, I wish I hadn't. Yeah. And in the meantime, I, I kept clothes because there was expensive clothes. I always thought, oh, I can replace the books, but expensive clothes, I thought, oh, I'll never replace those. And then I end up living in Cape Town. It's a seaside town, with a completely different climate. And then half the clothes that I wore to Harley Street, I'm never going to wear them. And I'm never going to fit into them again now anyway. So, uh, yeah. And you could have it had was, your books instead. Could have had yeah. my books instead. And I often think that's one of my regrets. Yeah. Well, you moved in 2012 and Kindle was definitely available then. Did you, you know, swap them for Kindle versions? I did. A lot of them I did get on Kindle mm. versions. But what I find with spiritual books is I'm a great note taker. I'm afraid I don't look after my spiritual books because I've got this pink pen, pale pink pen that I underline things and scribble things in the margin or pencil and dog ear things. I'm terrible. And the spines look dreadful at the end. Um, it's because uh, somehow... By writing something in the margin or underlining something, it solidifies it for me. And if I ever want to flick through that book again, I can kind of quickly flick through the bits that for me were important. And you, I know you can do that on a Kindle, but it's not the same. It and there's, the same. there's something else about a Kindle that I'll tell you that I find really frustrating. When you have an actual paperback, it's there on your table or by your bedside cabinet in your handbag, wherever it is, where every time you pick it up, you see the cover, the name of the author and the name of the book. When you have a Kindle, it's just your Kindle in its leather case. You open it and you're already halfway through the book or wherever you left it. So you keep forgetting yeah. who's the author, what's this book called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And often some of them don't even show the cover of the book as well. Well, they're so small you can't read it. Yeah. Well, with my eyes yeah. anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's got its good points and it's got its bad points. But I don't think I'll ever give up, you know, actual hard copies. The real um, thing. I, I think it's better. Thing. Kindle's better for novels, to sit yes. on a beach and read a novel. Yeah, yeah. Books you don't want to keep. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's start with your list. Now, the first book on your list was one that you said you picked up in the 90s at one of the early Mind, Body, Spirit festivals in London, which I remember very well because I used to go to them all. Um, so the book is Moon Over Water, Meditation Made Clear with Techniques for Beginners and Initiates, by Jessica Macbeth, and this book was published in 1990. So why did you pick up this one? Oh, why do we ever do anything? I'd heard on a radio show, actually on Radio 4, that it was somebody had come over from America who was a coach. And I think in those days in England, we'd never heard of a coach. A coach was somebody that looked after a football team or you went on it on a, a bus ride to the beach. Um, so I was quite fascinated while I was doing whatever I was doing, probably looking after kids, um, to kind of listen in in background mode. And this right at the end, the woman, I think the interviewer said, well, if there's one thing that you really would advise anybody to do, what it would be? And she 
said meditation and I thought it just rang true to me and it appealed to me and I thought this is something that's important and I think in our lives if we can listen to that small voice within the intuition it's banging there and it's kind of going yeah okay come on it's giving you that little prod and that's what happened and I kept thinking I must go and meditate and I tried to find out and research about meditation because they're all hugely expensive and required several days and I had small kids Went to Mind, Body and Spirit that used to be in Victoria in those days. And, um, and I bought all my crystals and <laughs> listened to the music and all the rest of it. And there used to be a big bookstore right near the entrance. You probably remember it. And I went there and there was yes. lots of angel cards and things like that. And um, I was just browsing and that book just pinged. It just spoke to me. There was something about the fact it was meditation techniques and it was simple for the beginner. That was rang. But also the picture on the front of the moon over water and the title. And uh, I picked it up and kind of read the back and read front and thought, and I had that kind of shiver down my arms and I knew I had to buy it. So that's what made me pick it up. And did you find meditation easy from the outset? I think it's one of those things that the concept of it is really easy. Just sit still and breathe. But it's the doing of it that's not easy. Oh, my goodness. At first, it was really hard. Um, but I remember would take that, I'd take the children to the park. They were little then. I'd take the children to the park. They'd be swing, playing on the swings and what have you. And I would sit there over that summer reading the next one. And I'd go, OK, and I'd put my, you know, timer on or something for five minutes and see if I could manage five minutes of this one and slowly slowly it got easier and easier and I was able to extend those periods for longer and longer but it's a bit like sort of playing a musical instrument or going to the gym you can't expect to do it straight away and that was one of the things I think it said in that book it said if you could all if meditation was easy we'd all be walking around meditating all the time so yeah, it's an easy concept and it's something that you just have to stay dedicated to and practice. But oh my goodness, I'm very, very glad I did. I think in that book it said, you know, if you meditate for 20 years, you'll really reap the benefits. And I have been meditating now for 21 years and you can I don't think I'd have got through the life I've had without being able to do that. And you said that a few years after buying the book, you developed and facilitated a short meditation and relaxation course. So it must have inspired you. It absolutely did. And I think at the time I was doing um, sort of guided, I was learning guided meditations. I think I've learned, learned very basic NLP techniques and I was a Reiki master. And so I had this notion that actually I think it was probably true, but it was a naive notion. I wasn't trained as a therapist in those days, but I had this notion that a lot of people's problems were stress-based, particularly living in London. And that if they could just slow down and stop the mind for a bit and relax, they'd feel better. Um, and I felt that I had a toolbox to be able to do that because the techniques in Moon Over Water are simple and you don't have to have any kind of initiation with any kind of guru or master. It's simple. So I thought if it's so simple, I can teach some of these and I can also do some guided meditation with people and I can even give them a bit of distant healing and do some space clearing. And it was kind of me road testing and practicing with all these skills that I'd learned in the early days. And had this this group, I think it was, I can't remember, it was a midweek um, over six weeks. And I repeated it a couple of times. And it was it went down really well. And lots of people got a lot from it and learned how to meditate. So it's great. Did you, um, she wrote a sequel called uh, Sun Over Mountain. Um, and uh, this one is Medis Meditation and Imagery to Heal Oneself. Did you read that book? Funnily enough, I do know she wrote the sequel, but I haven't read the book. I haven't read yeah. it. Yeah, maybe it's another one for the list. Well, number two on your list, 
appeared just last week uh, as well, um, Creating Sacred Space with Feng Shui by Karen Kingston, which was published in 1996 in England. Um, so tell us about that book and how you discovered Feng Shui and space clearing. Ooh, okay, so when my daughter was small, she's coming up for 30 now, so we're talking quite a long time ago. When she was small, I heard, again heard about Feng Shui somewhere and wanted to investigate further. So there weren't many books about in those days, by the way. There was about two or three books on feng shui that you could buy. And I bought them all and um, started fiddling around with, you know, wealth corners and putting crystals up and painting mm. things different colours and having this disastrous realisation that my, my bathroom was in the wealth corner and it was all going down the drain, you know, things like this. So <laughs> yeah. that was quite interesting. And then as I got a little bit further into that journey, I started to train and learn much more about it. And then somebody, I think it was on the feng shui system, Society. I was on the board of the Feng Shui Society in the very, very early days. They used to meet at Rudolf Steiner House in Regents, just off Regents Park. And somebody said, well, you know, if you're going to work with um, Feng Shui, you really need to understand energy. So you need to do Tai Chi. So I, I did Tai Chi in Qigong for a little bit, um, then went on to yoga. But they said no. And then that led into energy sensing. And then Karen, I bought the book and um, read it from cover to cover. I think there was another book around at the same time that talked about space clearing. Um, and I really loved her approach because it was so gentle and so, so mm. very Balinese and working with flowers and altars and candles. I really loved it. So I, again, I just kind of said, OK, well, let's have a go with this. Let's clear our house. And we were we moved house quite a lot as well when my kids were little and often to old houses. And it would be fantastic to put this different energy in. And then she came and gave us a talk at the Feng Shui Society. So I remember going and, and meeting her. It was quite a small, intimate group. And that was fantastic. And so she went into a lot more detail about that. And eventually did some training and then took it from there. And I'm still space clear now. I Rare, but I do still space clear. And that's actually what led to the ghost busting. So, yes, tell us about the ghost busting. Well, it, it started with space clearing. So I hadn't learned to space clear my own space. Then I started doing friends. And then people would say, well, can I pay you? Can you come and do my house? So I would just be clearing houses. Um, and then eventually, of course, you start cutting to the houses that have got the ghosty ghoulies in. And I had a friend who I'd space cleared her house and her practice. She was a chiropractor, not a chiropractor, I think she was an osteopath. And then she said, well, I've got a flat that I rent out and, and the, the tenants made a few complaints about noises and things there. Could you come space clear? <laughs> OK, let's go in, find out. This was ages ago. And I arrived and she didn't tell me anything except that the tenant had complained about some noises. And when I got there, I started sensing into the energy. And this was a huge, great big old wardrobe in the corner of one of the bedrooms. And I, I just see it in my mind's eye. I don't see it like some people actually see something externally. I don't do that. I have a knowing and I see it inside. And I could see this dog scratching and I just saw the whole picture. And it was a little girl who had drowned in a large pond the dog was her dog and was trying to save her, but the whole thing was slippery and muddy. So the dog had died and the little girl had died, but they were still in that trauma of the dog desperately trying to get the girl. And it's scratching noises were inside this wardrobe. And that's what was making the noise. Anyway, so I discovered all of this and um, cleared it and thought, well, I'll have to clear it. Um, so I remember I laid out an altar with candles and incense and I'd done prayers and called in energies and all this. There's a whole sort of 
um, rituals to be done. And uh, I just knew I had to call in Mark, Archangel Michael and get these souls sent to the light. And then I realized they weren't the ghosts, they didn't know they were dead. So I had to actually say to them, actually, you've, you've died a very long time ago. I said, the little girl was quite upset. I had to tell her, that mom, where's my mommy and daddy? I said, they're, they're up in heaven and they're waiting for you. And here's Archangel Michael, he's gonna take When you're doing all of this, Sandy, if you've got a rational mind like I have, there's a part of you that's going, you're making this up, it's bonkers. You really do think, I'm making this up. I'm getting paid for doing this. Anyway, I did the whole thing, then the dog followed, and then I saw the parents waving, and I saw them go up to the light, and then the heavens opened and they went. And I finished the space clearing, and at the end, the woman said, well, what did you find? And I told her, and she said, oh, that's really interesting, because that's exactly where they heard the noises. And they said it sounded like a dog scratching. And furthermore, this block, this apartment block had been built on the land of what used to be one of those grand old houses, which had a huge garden with a pool, an ornamental pool in it. So then you think you can't, I couldn't have made all of that up. So that was the beginning of it. But it got... Um, sort of, I think we're given these challenges and if we overcome them, we're given more <laughs> to stretch us. So it got to be more and more and more. Yeah. And eventually one day I went to, we were on holiday in um, Sussex and we took our kids to the battle where the Battle of Hastings was. And I just got this sort of almost like a tap on the shoulder. You've got a, you've got a space clear battle. I said, don't be ridiculous. You know, it's just, no, you've got a space clear battle. And I could smell the battle and hear it and see it there. And um, I just remember working with sacred mantras and angel names. And again, I think my ex-husband thought I was mad. The children tried to disown me. You know, <laughs> they walked ahead. I was doing it under my breath. Again, you think you're doing, you're mad. You're just making this up. And at the end, we were about to leave. And then I felt something, a presence behind me. And when I looked around, it was somebody on a horse, on horseback. And he just went, thank you. And I just saw all these horses and people just flowing up. And again, you think you're mad. And the, I think the most sort of um, hectic, I'd say, to use a South African word, they use a lot, ones have been since I've been in South Africa. Some of the things I've seen here, I don't do space clearings very often. I only go when I'm called to do them. And a lot of the time I do them for free. Um, and I've done land and I've done two properties here, which were really, because I think the history of colonialism and all sorts of horrible things happening with slavery, but also yeah. that indigenous um, witch doctors and sungormas and shamans have their rituals as well. So there's overlays of different cultures, but it's new, whereas England's very ancient land, so much has happened and it's, it's always think about things composting down into yeah. the land, yeah. whereas South Africa's relatively new, so it's all fresh on there. The energy's just fresh in there, so you can sometimes see some quite horrible things. Yeah, mm. so that's yeah. ghost. Don't do it now, really, unless you're. I don't asked. unless I, every so often somebody will call me up and say, "Oh, I've heard you're really good at space cleaning. Would you come and do my house?" And I just go, "No, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. Um, <laughs> please just use a shaman, a uh, sangoma," and occasionally. If they really nag, I'll give them a ridiculous price and they usually go away. But if it, if I'm meant to do it, I'll know. And I'll just go, mm, yeah, I'm meant to do this. Tell me. I'll come along. I'll do it. Mm. Yeah. So, but There's lots of things that I do, but I don't officially do, if you know what I mean. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I know many people who do space clean. Not many. I know a few people. Um, usually exceptionally gifted Reiki masters and people who really you know, are very sensitive to energy and are very good at clearing the space. Yeah. And, and you know, ancient battle sites as well. Um, yeah. 
Okay, so number three, um, you've sneaked in all three here, Conversations <laughs> with God, the entire trilogy by Neil Donald Walsh. Um, obviously, this book comes up again and again. Um, you know, what did it do for you? Gosh, it's such a long time ago that I read it uh, or read the three of them. Um, I don't even remember fully all the details of those those books. I remember that it was a letter that he wrote when he was angry and he was in a bad place and that God answered him. I know that the first book was more about personal stuff. Um, and I know, he, I think he seemed to remember he was quite religious and he had some hang-ups about a few things and God put him right on there. The middle one was more sort of to do with politics and the third one was more global and cosmic. And that's kind of all I really remember. But what was important about it was the sort of confirmation that when you hear things in your head, you're not going mad. That I wasn't going mad when I was space clearing the dog or the battle or any of the places here. It really is true. And that when I used to hear things, you know, people say things in my head, I wasn't going mad because obviously as a psychotherapist and you think I'm a psychotherapist with voices in my head. So you want to keep that a bit hush. But just the idea that we are intuitive beings we do sense and know things and we can hear things. It was like an affirmation and a confirmation. And I think as well, a lot of the things that he wrote about in that book just made sense to me. It felt like almost like a coming home. It was almost like um, somebody patting me on the back and going, it's okay. It's okay to be you. It's okay yeah. to be on this path. It's okay. Um, because my, I've come from a family of very rational thinkers. My father was an engineer and I've got four brothers and they all think I'm the wild, wacky, woo-woo one. So you do tend to doubt yourself then. So when a book like that comes along, it's like a lovely confirmation of things. And yeah. of course, I probably learned things from it. But what happened with those books was that I started channeling. Well, I don't know whether it was God, but it was definitely a voice that sounded like God. And I still have uh, a voice that talks to me. Um, and tells me things occasionally when I need them, like when I've got to space clear. And so I would be reading, and I remember specifically reading on the tube train on the way to work, because that was one of my big reading spaces when you're really busy, when you're sitting on the tube, you've got your book there. And I'd have to keep stopping and looking up because the voice would be expanding on everything in the book. And he'd be going, oh, but this and this. And so it's, by the time I got to the third book, it took me an enormous amount of time to read it because I just had to keep stopping at every paragraph to have it expanded on, which is bizarre. I probably should have written notes on what the expansions were, but I never did. Mm. Well, yeah, um, that would have been interesting, a, a record yeah. of the commentary. Yeah. 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 Did anybody disagree with what had been said? Did anyone say, no, 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 that's not right? I think the word, I seem to remember the word a couple of things saying he hasn't quite got that right. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah, not well, quite maybe. how it is. Ooh. And I wonder what Neil would say if you told him that. I know. <laughs> I wouldn't even be able to point to which bits it, it, that I had those revelations about. So, yeah. yeah. So, book number four Power versus Force, David oh, Hawkins. Um, yes, that comes up uh, again and again as well made a big yeah. impact on a lot of people. It's, it's comforting in a way, isn't it, that it comes up again and again, because it's, again, confirmation that it really is good. And I think there's lots of famous books that I could have put in here um, and probably Conversations with God and this one were biggies, and I kind of knew that when I put them in. This, for me, when I started reading it, I was sceptical at the very beginning when he talks about how the cues of people and he's healing them. Again, I don't have the book anymore. I haven't 
because it's gone, obviously, with all the books that went. Um, and it's another one that I wish I still had. But what fascinated me about that was how it was consciousness was measurable. So then I thought, well, if consciousness is measurable, you can measure anything, whether you're doing, you know, a training course or whether you're reading a book mm. or whether you're listening to music or you can choose to go for things that have a higher vibration and then surely that's going to raise your vibration. So then I would do things like I'd muscle test, you know, whether I should go to this course or not, and what vibration on that scale that he has, one to a hundred, where does it go? And then I had this kind of notion that I wasn't going to read anything if it was under 600 and things like that. And I used to muscle test people and I had a friend at the time who was teaching um, like an Egyptian Reiki and Egyptian wisdom and healing Reiki. And she said, I want to teach this. I was going to raise everybody up beyond 600. You know, we'd muscle test. Um, but it was really great to notice, to know and understand that consciousness is ever expanding. I think he actually goes beyond what he's saying because he says a thousand is the level of Christ consciousness. And I would say now with a greater understanding, it goes way beyond that. It can go infinitely. So once you've you've gone beyond this limited spectrum of life, you can mm. go infinitely. And I think when you then tap in and connect to higher beings of light, you can be muscle test infinitely, which is quite interesting. So yeah, and, and it is it is a fascinating thing. I know somebody who has um, has done something slightly different, um, and he was actually on. He was one of our contributors and a guest, a wonderful man called Jeff Van der Kloot. And I had a conversation with Jeff before we started the book club. And I said, wouldn't it be fun if we could actually, you know, calibrate the consciousness of each of these books? So people would say, oh, well, that one's, you know, a 600 and that one's only three. I'll read that one. And yeah. But the way he does it is a completely different way. And he said, the problem is, he said, the books that, you know, would calibrate to the, you know, and he didn't go high. He actually went the other way. So it was like minus okay. numbers. But, you know, for the sake of just understanding this, the books that would calibrate the highest would be so complex that people probably wouldn't be able to read them. That's an interesting thing, you see. I do agree with that to some degree. I do. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. I, you know, I had visions of doing this like five star thing. Oh, this book's a five star. That one's a four star. Yeah. Um, or this yeah. particular list is a five star. But no, um, we decided get too it's not to work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I noticed that as well when I was that because that's exactly what I did. If I bought a book um, or I was even in a bookshop, I'd get my dowser out or I'd use the muscle test like this. And, and, you know, and I would if I got if I could find a book that was 900 or something like that, I would. Right. I'm getting this, you know. <laughs> Yes. You wouldn't necessarily read it. Um, but I th what I found really interesting was music that, that calibrates highly because that's you don't you can put that in the background and play it, can't you? And it's yes, raising your vibration. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good good thing. I wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, book number four, Emotions and the Enneagram by Margaret Frings Keys, working through your shadow life script. Yeah. I find the Enneagram a little bit hard to understand. There are so many different books on it that, you know, come at it from different angles that it's got me flummoxed a bit. So tell me about this and why it was important mm. to you. Well, there's a lot of facets to that. Um, the first thing is 
that I agree with you about what's happened to the Enneagram. But the way that I teach it, because I actually teach Enneagram in the bone circle, we, we look at it intuitively, and we say that the Enneagram is actually the structure of your ego or the structure of your small self. And then you have a greater self or a greatness, which has a completely different structure of love, truth, and service. So if you take it, realize that the Enneagram is originally a Sufi, a mystical Sufi wisdom teaching, and you go back to its roots, it's incredibly powerful. But what's happened is it's been um, taken by, first of all, psychologists to kind of try and pigeonhole people, and then by corporates, which is even worse, because yeah. the whole point of the Enneagram is to transcend it. And then, then what has happened is the, it's, it's got turned on its head by corporates who go, oh, well, you're a whatever it is. You're a four. You're the creative. We're going to stick you in the creative department. And then it's take, pushing you further into that life orientation. Um, so one of the reasons I like that particular book on the Enneagram is it, it's more true to the original concept of the Enneagram. The, the nine points, because it talks, goes right back into how those points are derived. So those nine points are derived because there's an initial triangle at the core of them. And that initial triangle is basically the points of fight, flight and freeze, which is the human being's response to any danger. There's only those three responses. That's all there are. So it's either going to be anger if you're in fight or fear if you're in flight or depression, actually, if you're in freeze, because it means that you're handing over your power to somebody else and hoping that you'll get saved. So you're subjugating yourself, if you like, and that can set up depression. So when you understand it like that and you understand how it, the actual structure underneath the Enneagram is very powerful, and when you see that it's to do with the shadow and it's to do with early conditioning and that you can overcome it and rise beyond it, as I said, it's very powerful. So the reason I like that book is it's quite true to the original and it's also written by a therapist, a Jungian therapist. So she understands the psyche. So she's not, I mean, things, I'll give an example of another thing that's happened with the Enneagram. The original, original originals, they didn't have names for those points. They just had programs. So it would be something like the program of excellence with melancholia or something, which is the, the Enneagram 4, or the, the program of excellence with um, fear of failure or something, which is the 3. And then it kind of got named by people. So it would be something, the, the, the classic one is the 8, the 8 point is, I can't remember what the original program is, um, but it's all anger-based. And it used to be called the boss. Well, then it got to the challenger, and then it got to sort of like the leader. So you've gone from it being somebody who can be quite psychopathic and bossy, who's got some real it, it power issues, to the leader. And how did that happen? It's because things have got massaged, and I think that's why it's so confusing. And mm. that's why I love that book, because it brings it back home to what it's really about. Mm, interesting. I might look at that one then and see if I can master it at last. It's quite um, an old book, but it's a goodie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the next book is one that, as a practicing hypnotherapist, you were fascinated. Um, and that's The Journey of the Souls, uh, Case Studies of Life Between Lives by Michael Newton, which has cropped up quite a few times. Um, the first question I want to ask you before you talk about the book, did you then start practicing this? 
I had to, I had to give it a you go. Had to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Doing regression with your clients, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I already did past life. I didn't, most of the time in the way that I worked with hypnosis is you don't, I never told anybody whether to go back into your past life or this life. I would just say, frame it this way. I would talk to their subconscious and then say, you know, the person reports to me that they've got this problem um can we work on this yes or no and the subconscious say yes or no and then i say is it would it be appropriate to go way back into the past to bring forward information to help this person to understand why they have this problem and they go yes and nine times out of ten they go back to a past life although i could do past life regression as well if somebody actually wanted that and so it was fascinating to do some between life regressions and also mm. have one done myself as well um what i really loved about that book it might have been one of the few that I kept actually um what I loved about that book was that it was very clean the way it's done because it's all case studies the whole book is just case studies and mm. he explains at the beginning as any good hypnotherapist that you have to be very careful and clean with your language so you can't even say is it raining say <laughs> because then you've put the suggestion in that it's raining. Yes. you have to go what's the weather like um yes. So you never lead the witness, so to speak. And that's what he does all the way through. He never, ever says, oh, are you seeing this? He says, what can you see? Report back, report back, which is exactly the way that I was trained. And then you know that you're getting um, that person's tr highest truth of what they're seeing. And then the fact that it all mirrored so many other people was such a fabulous confirmation. And again, I, I don't know, a confirmation that some of the work that you do is valid as well, because... We know that past lives, can, taking somebody back into a past life can be really, really powerful. Somehow mm. it just heals the problem quite quickly. Um, and I always knew and believed in past lives and that things that have happened in the past life can affect us now. So then it was fascinating to see that soul's journey between the two. And I think it's very comforting for people who've lost loved ones. I've mm. often recommended it to people who are grieving. So they know the soul's gone on and because there's that lovely bit at the beginning, I think, that where he says somebody's died and they're, 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 he's in hypnosis and he's just left the body. And he says he's standing around and he's waiting three days or whatever it is. And he can see his loved ones uh, crying and he wants to comfort them, but he can't. And um, just a lovely thing for people to know that their loved ones uh, still exist. They're just on the other side of the veil. Mm, indeed. Now, the next book is not very well known at all. And yet it won its place on your 10 best over Autobiography of a Yogi, the Kibalian, the Gita, and a few books on yoga. And the book is Gem's Story, A Spiritual Journey by Eust. Eust, I think it's called. Eust, yeah. Eust, Eust. Boek, Bokhoven? Bokhoven? I would say it's Joost Bokhoven. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, that You've got the accent. Best, I haven't. Accent. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I know. It's uh, uh, All those other books, there's lots of books, as we've said, that come up again and again for people. But like you were saying about the um, muscle testing and the looking at the, the numbers, some of those books stay on people's bookshelves forever and they never actually read them. Um, so it's all very well to recommend a book. But unless somebody's actually going to say, oh, I think I'd like to read that and actually buy it and actually read it, then it's not actually moving them forward in any way. Yeah. And what I loved about this book was that it's a story. That's the first thing. It, it's a narrative, which is so refreshing after you've plowed through things like power versus force and, you know, yeah. um, those sort of well, course in miracles or 
autobiography of a yogi, you're plowing through things. This was a narrative and it's beautifully written. And that's one of the things that appealed to me. It's so beautifully written. It's very timeless. It's written in first person and it's just this journey of Jem. And we don't really even know what, where Jem lives or where, you know, what time or era or what country, but it's, it could be transposed anywhere. But the whole of the way, it's slightly tongue-in-cheek in a way because it's revealing, it's revealing a spiritual journey from the different perspectives of Jem and her master. And there's just this lovely bit because Jem is so innocent, but she's there and she understands it. And the master's got caught in his stuff. And it's that parable, you know, that the master is always the teacher and the, the sorry, that the teacher is always the student and the student yeah. is always the teacher. Jem as the student is teaching her master. It's such, such so gentle and beautifully written the way it unfolds. It's a joy to read it. It's one of those spiritual books that you you can just, I don't know, it's a wonderful one to take on holiday or, you know, snuggle up on a cold winter's evening by the fire with a cup of cocoa and read that book because it's heartwarming. It's really, really heartwarming and moving and gentle and lovely. So that's why it's on there. Easy to read. Mm. So you describe the next book as like Marmite. You either love it or you hate it. And you found it fascinating. So tell us why. Is that the neuroscience? This is proof, of, proof, proof of Heaven, heaven. Yeah. A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife by Eben Alexander. A book which actually has, you know, there's a lot of controversy around this book uh, with yeah, some people saying, well, you know, he wasn't completely uh, authentic in what he wrote, but who knows? Well, Only he that's does. It. That's it. We don't know. Um, oh, I don't know really why I chose this, but I, I think it is because of who he is, because mm -hmm. we, there's lots of probably better books on near-death experience. Uh, Anita Morjani and, and, and others that have had near-death yeah. experiences. There's lots and lots yeah. and lots of books on near-death experiences. And I think if you've been on a spiritual path, you will probably have come across near death and have avidly watched videos or listened to interviews or read books, and you'll know um, what people are saying. So it's not so much what he's saying, but the fact it's him who's saying it, and he put his career on the line in doing it. So whether everything he says is true or not or what, um, the fact is he was a neurosurgeon who didn't believe in an afterlife who did not believe his patients who had had near-death experiences, who was absolutely adamant that it was just a chemical reaction in their brain and there was nothing out there. And he was absolutely stoic in his stance. And that very much reminds me of my brothers and my father, how they're just not going to budge. They don't have ears to hear. It doesn't matter what uh, evidence you present them with or what you show them they're just not interested for example um, my brother lives in dorset right near what's been some fabulous crop circles and i keep saying to him there's this amazing crop circle oh yeah you know <laughs> what do you mean oh yeah oh we don't want to go see that you know can't be bothered no questioning what it is and i think yeah. he probably thinks there's two drunk people going out with a board and flattening them and even if it was, they're amazing geometries. Go and have a look. Amazing pieces of artwork. What an installation on your doorstep. Go see it. But there's no, not that curiosity isn't there. And I really felt that that's what Abraham Alexander was like. He had this kind of closed mind. And I think that a lot of people who are in academia, say, who are 
in the medical, not necessarily. Well, they're trained that way, aren't they? They're trained that way. They're trained to look at the body as a piece of machinery. And I think that the deeper they go in their specialism, the more they're going, burrowing into a deep channel and closing out everything else. So that's what fascinated me about the book was his turnaround from having that experience. So whatever the controversy is around the truth of what he's written, um, what he wrote did make sense to me from everything that I've read and understood and learned. And nothing clashed, made me think, oh, that's not right. Um, so I felt it had a ring of truth to it. But just great that somebody like that has written the book and stepped outside of the norms and the conventions and would have probably taken flack for that. And that's a brave thing to do, isn't it? It is a brave, a very courageous thing to do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that's, that's why I like it, I think. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Number nine, The Heroine's Journey, Woman's Quest for Wholeness by Maureen Murdoch. Yeah. So, so this is a, a counterpoint to The Hero's Journey. Yeah, um, I love this book. It seems to resonate with so many women, particularly now, although it was written quite a while back. I think it was in the 80s. I actually only read it about 10 years ago. Um, so I read it as a secondhand book late, you know, but um, it, it, so I worked with the hero's journey anyway, because that's part of the bone circle training is we all go on a hero's journey um, externally when we go for things that we want. So and I listened, I'd read a couple of um Joseph Campbell things and I'd watched a lot of interviews I watched that whole series that he did The Power of mm. Myth and um, so I was quite fascinated with the hero's journey and the myth and the uh, idea of the steps to the hero's journey and the symbolism of it as well so that was always really fascinating and then when this one came along called The Heroine's Journey I remember thinking well how can you have a heroine's journey it's the same journey whether you're a man or a woman you take the same journey and a friend of mine, actually, who said, no, read it. So I did. And it turns out that she actually met Joseph Campbell and challenged him over the hero's journey. And he, she, she said, what about women? And he said, oh, no, women don't take the hero's journey. The, the, women are the boom. You know, women, it's like Penelope sitting, doing the tapestry and I'm doing it, waiting for Odysseus to come back. Women don't go on the journey. And she said, well, that's no good because modern woman does. Um, so that's how it all kind of starts. And then she plotted this whole heroine's journey, which I think is hugely valuable for any woman who's been in really this place that Katie in my book, Red Dress is in, where they're trying to juggle career and family and children and husband and everything, and they're burning out. And that's what the heroine's journey is about, really. It says that there's a, we, um, we, we get wounded in relation to the feminine. And then there's the mother-daughter. We reject the feminine. We reject the mother. But mother is symbolic not only of your actual mother, but Mother Earth and anything that the mother is about, which is nurturing and mm. all of these values, which are actually hugely important in society, we deem as weak. We don't want to be you know, nurturing and caring and looking after and sowing and <laughs> gardening and preparing food. And we see that as less than in some way. So we kind of divorce ourselves from our own femininity to go on the road of trials and go on the hero's journey and make it with the men. And yeah. women do. We've broken the glass ceiling and women have been hugely successful. But what can happen is to go on that journey, we have to go into our masculine. Now, obviously, we've all got both masculine and feminine energies and the ideas to get them in balance. But we go further into the masculine, which is all about doing, doing, doing and being out there and rational. 
Um, we have to, to fit into that world of work, the way that it's set up, because it's formerly been mostly men. So then you're stepping into a world that's being formulated by the masculine. So you're shaping yourself into that, going on the road of trials, just like the men. Um, but you also probably want to have children and get married and have a house and still do lovely things, womeny things, soft things, feminine things, and it clashes. And so you're trying to do it all and then you end up becoming burnt out. A lot of people come, become burnt out or feel dry or feel there's more to life than this or feel that it's a pyrrhic victory somehow. They've got what they wanted and it's empty inside. And then there's this endless uh, urgent search to reconnect with the feminine. And that means going within um, to face the demons within and to reconnect and heal all of that. And I think a lot of women go through that during menopause, but then a lot of women take HRT, and so they rob themselves of the rite of passage of menopause, which reconnects them back to their divine wisdom. Because mm. I think wisdom is part of the divine feminine. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Your last book you describe as a complete teaching, not just a book. Um, and this complete teaching has become a way of life. But when you first came across it, or you read an excerpt from it, you found it arcane and inaccessible. So why did you keep going? I think spirit just pushes you, don't they? When I first came across an excerpt from it, I was doing... Um, well, let, let's just say what the book is, just so that oh, yeah, people sorry. know. <laughs> it's, it's my fault. It's the Book of Knowledge, The Keys of Enoch by Dr. James J. Hertak. And it is, uh, you know, inaccessible was exactly what I thought. Most people do. It's one of those ones that sits on the shelf alongside Course in Miracles. Um, so I'm, a lot of healing modalities have come out of that book. Um, magnified healing is one of them. Gaia on Heart was another one that was done by an Indian lady. I think it used to be called something like uh, something to do with Melchizedek and I can't remember. Um, and then the third one is the Reconnective Healing by Eric Pearl. And all three have come from the Keys of Enoch. So it, would been, it had been in the sort of periphery. And they say that you come to the key, the keys comes to you when you're ready. And um, so I had this excerpt from the book, which was part of the training for magnified healing. And it was talking about these five higher bodies, not the five etheric bodies, but these other bodies. And I couldn't make head nor tail of it. And I remember in the class, we were sat in a circle and we each read a paragraph and we might as well have been reading a complete, you know, double Dutch. It, it didn't make sense. And I actually dared to say, excuse me, I don't understand this. And the teacher said, no, nobody understands it. It's fine. It's just coding you. Just read it. We have to read it as part of it. So well, that's a bit, you know, Bit of a cheat, isn't it? Just to read it, not really understand it. So I tried to kind of grapple with this sheet of paper that was given to me and still couldn't really get it. Um, tried to go as deep as I could with it and felt like I was just drowning in. I just It just feels like you can go down too many rabbit holes and you can get lost in the teaching. Mm -hmm. Then when I went to, I think I the lady that ran Magnified Healing, she was American and she was coming to Europe to initiate masters and it was in Belgium I think or somewhere and I went for the initiation and when I had the final kind of you know whatever master mastery or whatever the level was I don't even know anymore I don't even use it anymore um it's all part of the journey isn't it I think all of these things were just growing she said to me you're a true master Bridget and you need to get the keys of Enoch so I thought oh well all right okay and it makes sense because I keep coming across it I'd read Alexander uh, sorry um Eric Pearl's book The Reconnection and that mentioned it I kept coming across it and I thought okay 
you know, the universe is telling me something, let's get this book. So I, I actually didn't realize you could buy it from the website. <laughs> and I thought that started to try and find this book and nobody had it, not even Watkins, I don't think. And eventually I found a secondhand copy on Amazon and I bought it and it arrived while I was on holiday. And I got back and, you know, when you get back from holiday, there's a huge pile of posts that the neighbours kindly put on your kitchen table. And this massive, it's a big book. It's about the size of a Bible. So this great big cardboard Amazon box had arrived. And I took this book out and I just had goosebumps all over um, just looking at the cover and started to go through this thing. And I just absolutely knew without a shadow of a doubt that however complex it looked and however arcane and inaccessible it was, my hairs were standing on end and I could not put that book down to the degree that my kids who were younger then and my ex-husband were going, are we having anything to eat? Are you going to help us unpack this suitcase? What are you doing? Are we putting the heating on? Who's making tea? You know, everybody was, you know, unpacking from holiday and rediscovering home. And I was just sitting at the kitchen table, still in my coat, reading this this book. I'm not even reading it, just flicking through and looking at the pictures and looking at what's called the glyph pages, which are the actual keys. And um, I just wanted I just wanted to know more. I just wanted to lap it up. I wanted to understand it. And then realized that you actually have to, I actually went back to the woman in America and she said, no, you have to go to study group. So I found that there was a study group in those days. It's not anymore. But there was a study group at the Friends Meeting House opposite Euston Station in London. And it was on the last Thursday of the month. And I just couldn't do it because I was teaching on the Thursday. So I had to wait until that course was over. And then I, I joined and I've never looked back since I absolutely loved it from day one. And the minute you go to a study group, you start to understand it, you start to just get the fingertips in there, you know, like hanging on by the very fingertips, should I say. Um, and yeah, now it's 15 years later, and I now facilitate a study group. And I still don't understand it. In fact, the more I read and the more I study, the more I think I don't understand. But the truth is, actually, tomorrow morning, I'm doing a basic introduction for new people. So when I do that, I now realize that people are going, hang on a minute, it's going too fast. I don't understand all of this. And I don't think we understand how much we understand because the keys themselves are unlocking our consciousness and unlocking things in the mind so that we get to understand much better. But you've got to start with a whole new vocabulary. There's a whole Enochian vocabulary that you've got to get your head around. And even normal words that you think you might know what they are, like spirit or spiritual or soul or Kabbalah, means something completely different in the key. So you're kind of constantly referring to the to the glossary to remember. I remember for years, ages, I couldn't remember even what the key meant, a key. Because it doesn't mean a key like just that unlocks. It's the, it, uh, it is, it does unlock, but it, I, even now I can't exactly remember what so is. What, what's the biggest thing that you've taken from it? Just a, mass, a massively vast cosmology. I mean, it's a vast book. It's actually written on seven levels, from the subatomic to the superluminal. So you're, you're trying, this is why it's inaccessible, because it's actually trying to implode the constructs of your mind to open up to a higher consciousness. It's actually extending and unlocking your consciousness. So just understanding um, how, why we're here and who we are and where we've come from and where we're going. And the much, much bigger picture of a greater cosmology and that we're just a very, 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 very small part of that. Um, and having a much greater understanding of scripture. I didn't have a religious upbringing. I wasn't into church or Bible. But to go back to scripture now and read it with the eyes of the keys is fascinating and amazing. It's one of my favorite things to read. Um, so just 
it feels like such a vast understanding of higher consciousness of the divine of the godhead of angelics of mathematics and sacred geometries and it's also a, what we call a capstone teaching so it encompasses other teachings so in there is egyptian things in there is the tibetan bond tradition in there is sanskrit in there is some christian stuff around the cosmic christ there's also a lot of hebrew and kabbalah and um tree of life and that sort of thing so it's it's exhaustive and extensive and so you never get bored with it there's always something new in it there's always another thing you're learning and adding to your wisdom and i think particularly now with the crazy times we're going through it gives you great comfort because you know there's a greater plan and a bigger plan it's very precise the keys it's scientific it's the science of spirituality so it's very very precise it's not a poetry it's not a lullaby to something it's not um just what somebody thinks it's it's a very 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 profound teaching um and i think it's the highest truth that i've ever come across anywhere to the degree that i rarely read anything else now in terms of spiritual mm. books so isn't this does it have something to do with or was it based on the emerald tablet no emerald tablets is quite different i did it study quite that different. as well yeah yeah mm. it's very different so um did hertak channel this piece of work no he didn't he, he's very at pains to let you know this so so dr hertak was a scientist and um teaching at the time in california when he had his experience he was 33 and he'd already studied um comparative religion he'd already studied scripture he was fluent in greek and hebrew and all of these classical languages as well and he uh, he had an experience when he was about 16 of a light that was in his room that was uh, like the merkaba and he was told it was the merkaba and he wanted to understand this and he wanted to so he went and studied all these ancient scriptures he studied the nag hammadi and the um dead sea scrolls and all of these uh, eastern philosophies as well and he asked to know more and he spent all that time studying and then at the age of 33 he had a he actually had a paraphysical experience where he was taken off planet he disappeared for 3 days nobody you know he bought everything he was not here and he was taken in the light body of Merk of, um, of Enoch to um the gates of Orion actually Orion the star gates of Orion it all sounds fantastical but when you meet him you know it's true and when you read the keys you just know it's true because uh, this for example the numbers in the keys they put it through a computer and they said no human being could have written this just the way the numbers lock together that's not even anything else but he was taken off the planet and he was taken to this stargate and from there enoch himself who was the enoch that was in the bible that wrote the book of enoch enoch could go no further and he was taken in the merkaba of metatron into the throne space of the father and he was given these burning he was his mind was accelerated to understand it because he couldn't have understood it and these scrolls of light were put into his third eye it all sounds fantastical it really sounds fantastical when i'm talking to you like this on an interview you know what but you know having studied it for 15 years i can tell you without any shadow of a doubt i absolutely believe him um he came back and was told he had to write the keys of enoch and he said it could have been like the encyclopedia britannica he could have written absolutely reams and he, he realized he had to get it down into a small book so actually the small book is like the bible but then he's, there's there are expositions to help you understand the keys um 
and he's also done expositions on all of the books of the Bible and the old Nag Hammadi and all of the these other amazing things like the Pistis Sophia, which is a fabulous, fabulous teaching of the sacred feminine. Um, he is amazing, amazing energy and an amazing man to be around and quite very academic, very scientific. And he, again, a bit like Abraham Alexander, he was ostracized from the uh, scientific community because they thought he'd gone mad. They literally thought he's gone mad, you know. Um, he thinks he's been taken up to the higher heavens and been given this teaching. But what's really interesting, there are 64 keys of science within the keys, 54 of which are in the original book. And then, then he was told that the last 10 would only be given when the consciousness of man was right. And they were started to be given for six years ago. This year is key 406. So that it, since 1973, which is when he had his experience and people thought he was mad, a lot of things within the keys have been verified by science including things like string theory. So, I mean, loads and loads and loads of things. Um, the latest one was the last year's Nobel Prize winner of black holes in space or something. That was in the keys in 1973. So it's all sort of coming together now. I think it's mm. really of our time. I mm. just find it fascinating. I love it. Couldn't is really live without it. Is that your favourite of all ten? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And have you incorporated... It's not that it's my favourite. I, I think it's the most long-lasting, the highest truth, and the one that will keep me going forever. Whereas the others, uh, not that I didn't... You know, I loved Gem, for example. That was one of my favourites as well, because it's so beautifully written. But it's not a book that I'll go back to and read and read and read and learn and learn and learn yeah. and grow from, whereas The Keys is. This is why I said it's more of a teaching and a way of life. Sorry, so you. did you incorporate some of that into your Bone Circle programme? There's a little bit, um, but I didn't want to go too far with it, partly because it's copywritten to Dr. Hertak and partly because it is quite esoteric um, and it isn't everybody's cup of tea. And so I think you could put more people off than you know, by putting too much of things from the keys. But what I do use is I use a lot of the sacred names. We've been given a lot of sacred names and the vibrations are really, really high and they're absolutely beautiful. And I do use the sacred names with the bone circle. Um, we use those so for opening. Explain, explain to us what the bone circle is then. The bone circle. The bone circle is an absolutely unique and transformative training that I've developed and um, created and road tested. And I'm actually in the process of upgrading it completely and putting it online. But because I want to simplify it, it got too complicated. And that's interesting because we were talking about if things are too complicated, people aren't going to take them on board. And I think sometimes it's better to simplify Yes. So um, the bone circle is really the intersection of three areas of my expertise. One being that whole kind of spiritual world that I've been in. I used to teach yoga as well, so meditation, yoga, but also um, space clearing and sacred space and being fully present and mindfulness and those sorts of stuff. Uh, also things like drinking water and eating well, lifestyle choices and the vibrations of mantras, those sorts of things. That's all part of the bone circle. And for me, that's about being fully present in the moment and being connected. And then I've had the, all the years of being a therapist, a psychotherapist and a, a hypnotherapist and healer, which is all about understanding the psyche and unhooking things from the past. So that's where the Enneagram would come in, is understanding your Enneagram and understanding it's not actually really you. 
it's only your conditioning so you don't really you don't define yourself by your enneagram so to work with unhooking the past and understanding the psyche and understanding your conditioning so it doesn't trip you up and sabotage you is actually what that's really about and there's a few simple techniques that i add into the bone circle for people to actually be able to unhook things from the past um so that's the, about the past and then the the bulk of the bone circle is actually about creating the future but you can't create the future unless you can be fully present in the now and you've unhooked the past that influences it so we tap into intuition at will so it's a learning uh, a technique that i give you um which is a meditation to tap uh, when well, once you've done the meditation you can tap at will into your intuition so you're tapping into your into your intuitive knowing at will and following that and learning to listen to your intuitive mind, your intuitive voice, your greater self that's trying to live life and express through the smaller self. Um, and that's leading you and guiding you uh, to your purpose, your sole purpose, but the life you'd love, the things that you'd really love, the things that you've denied yourself, the things that you've conditioned yourself against. So it's about creating. And the reason it's a circle is we can't do it alone. So it goes back to the hero's journey. No hero goes on their journey without all their helpers there's always their helpers around them. And so you can't, and it is a hero's journey to go and do the bone circle training because you have to step out of your comfort zone. You have to look at your stuff and you have to step out to do what it is you've come in to do. And that's why it's life-changing. So why, you do it with Why friends. bone? Why it's bone? Bones, yeah, bones. It's, at the time I was reading um, or rereading Women Who Run With The Wolves because I was thinking of setting it as a text for the because initially that training was for women. And it talked a lot about the bones in there. But before that, I actually worked intuitively to get the name. So I tuned in intuitively to that name. And I thought it was going to be something, you know, like, I don't know, wisdom keepers or something, I don't know, angelic realms or something fluffy. And it came out as bone circle. It was very, very witchy. What I realized is the bones are... It's like going back down to the bare bones. So you strip back down to the bones and build up okay. the bones. Yeah. The bones are always there. But also, if you think about the shaman, they throw the bones to predict yeah. the future. And the bones are the structure. Now, in the bone circle, we talk a lot about structure. And the bones are the structure on, of our body. And they're, there, they're, they're the last thing to go. You've still got your DNA in the bones when everything else is gone and you're in the grave. Mm. So they're long-lasting as well. So there's a lot of reason for calling it bone circle. Got it. Got it. Okay, so um, tell us about your novel. You published your debut novel um, just a couple of months ago, published by John Hunt, and it is uh, fiction, but it is loosely based on your own life. It is indeed. And yeah. you've woven in quite a few spiritual teachings, principles in there? Yes, I have, yeah. So Red Dress, a novel, it's is a novel and you can take it at different levels. So you can just take it as a fun novel about a woman who lives in London, West London. She's married to somebody who's not a very nice person, got two kids and she's a therapist. And I was a therapist and I did live in West London, but not where she lives. I do have two ch children as well. And there's a few things about her that are like me. I do like chocolates and so does she. I do like driving fast and so does she. Um, but. And there's a loosely some of the things that happen in her life happen to me. Her soul contract is mine. And I have done Aurasoma and some of those things that she does. Um, but otherwise, she's not me. She's she is fictitious. She's fictionalized. And she's 
very new and green in her spiritual journey. So she's doing it with trepidation, sitting on the fence with the cynical voice, oh, should I, should I go or shouldn't I? Um, which obviously isn't me because I've been kind of went, jumped straight into it like a duck to water um, or a fish to water. So she's not me in that respect. And then there's other characters within the book that could also be seen as me. She's got a therapist supervisor, Terry, and that could be seen as me. The, and she, her best friend Shanti, who's spiritual and knows everything about everything spiritual, could really also be me. But they're all actually fictional. So it's a, you can see it as a story about a woman who's stressed out in a successful life, and she's empty inside. She's lost who she is, and she's lost sight of her values and what makes her tick. And she embarks on a journey to rediscover her true self. And she does that through seeing her supervisor for therapy sessions and embarking on this spiritual path, which she's a bit cynical about, not sure about anyway. And she comes across these new new and wonderful wacky friends. So you can see it as that. You can see it as um, a study of relationship dynamics. There are quite toxic relationship dynamics within the, the story. Um, so you can just look at it at that level. You can look at it as at the psychology level of it, or you can look at it as a spiritual journey because it essentially is a spiritual journey. She goes on a spiritual journey and everything in Red Dress is authentic and real. So everything that she does, whether that's the soul contract or the aura soma or whether it's Reiki or she meditates as well, She's, she um, does yoga, um, everything that she does is an authentic thing. So we're watching somebody embark on a spiritual journey of awakening to find themselves. And we're watching her take that journey, take the pitfalls, wonder whether this is true or not, or whether it's real or not. And so for the reader, I can just you can either just take that as a story, or you can say, actually, I would like to do something similar. I'd like to have a spiritual journey. Maybe I should do this or that or the other, or this particular bit of the book interests me and I'm going to find out more. And you can, you can go Google that and find out more. But hopefully I've put all of that in a fun and accessible way. I mean, it's funny in places. I lost sight of it being funny by the time it had all been edited and rewritten and all the rest of it. And you just think, was that ever funny? But friends of mine who've now read it have said, oh, I loved it. I've actually burst out laughing at this bit. I loved it. So yeah, it's funny, it's serious, it's sad. And so it's- why, why the red dress? It, I didn't know what I was going to be called the book until, until towards the end of it. Uh, originally, it started off as a working title of alchemy by numbers, and everybody thought it was about numerology. So I thought, well, I need to change this. And I came up with a couple of names, and I happened to mention it to a few friends of mine. And one, this, one lady went, oh, Red Dress, that's great. Oh, I'd buy a book called Red Dress. So the reason it's called Red Dress is that the central character, Katie, the protagonist, is working through these things called aurasoma bottles, which are helping to clear her energetically. And she gets to have to wear the colours of the bottles. Now, that was OK when they're kind of quite nice colours, like I think one's blue and white. But when it's kind of magenta and lime green, it doesn't really suit her and it's awful. So she's wearing all these awful colours. And then it gets to the point where she's worked through all the bottles and she's free to wear whatever color she wants. And she realizes it's gone and she opens her wardrobe door thinking, oh, I can wear anything. Um, and she's trying to choose an outfit to go out that evening. And um, as she's scanning down, she can't decide, she can't decide. And she hears a voice in her head and it says, red dress. So she wears the red dress and you have to read the book to find out what happens. It's quite a turning point actually in the story. <laughs> Okay. Wow. Well, um, your bone circle work sounds very interesting. And I know that you are very interested in working with women, circles of women. 
Um, and I think circles of women seems to be something that is coming to the fore quite a bit at the moment. Um, yeah. So if somebody wants to work with you in this circle, just tell us, you know, what does it entail and how long does it take and how do they do that? Okay, so uh, because I'm in the process of redoing um, it, well, sort of upscaling it really and putting it online, it, it will be slightly different. The original training was, a, was actually a 12 month, 12 sessions over a year. But what I want to do is break it down because I think it's too much to take on board. So I think it will be broken down into five sessions. And the first one will be a really, really basic introduction to basically say, you've got a higher, greater self, which is called your, your greater self. And then you've got this small ego or conditioned identity self, which I call small self. And you can choose to live from the orientation of either of them and to talk about the difference between simply reacting and responding to events, both internal and external, and going beyond that and choosing to create something and the power of choice and vision and choosing and taking inspired actions. So that's a very simple bare bones of it and then I've actually got names of I think it's called the bare bones and then there'll be a second one where we go a bit deeper into what's holding you back what sabotages you what are the 12 key core beliefs that stop people that we've all got um, and how do we overcome those and how does greatness work and how does intuition work um, and teaching you um, how to tap into intuition and then the next one will be taking that even deeper into the Enneagram and understanding how to overcome those sabotage patterns and then also really understanding about life orientation and creating from us from your soul self from your greater self you intuitively and I will give you techniques to create what I call fundamental choices which are things like choosing to be free choosing to be healthy choosing to be true to yourself um, uh, there's there's five of them. They're called fundamental choices, and they're life orientations, and get you to work into that orientation and start to practice with the techniques of tuning into those and working with a structure to take you there. Which we look at the visions and end results, what you want to create, where you are now, which is your current reality, and then how do you get from there to there, which is um, an inspired. Um, action that you take which you get intuitively and then once they've got that we go into a thing called gift of life which is a meditation that I've developed where you go into your own heart to take your key to your soul and you go into a place called your gift of life and you receive the gift of your true life and then you gift it to others by creating it and bring it bringing it into life realizing it actualizing it um, and then there'll be an advanced one where we can start looking at maybe child inside work and other things that you can do to unhook traumatic patterns that people have patterns where they create negative patterns all over and over and over in their lives. Sometimes with people, it's relationships. Sometimes it's with work or with money or with where they live or they'll have a pattern um, that repeats. And it's about unhooking all of those. And for that, you need to go a bit deeper into the psyche side. And for that, I want people to know what they're doing. So that comes in on the mastery training. We're, we're going to have to almost leave it there, Bridget, because we're almost out of time. Just tell us, when is that likely to be available online? I'm hoping to get it online by the end of the year. Okay. So um, so people can find out more at your website? 
Yes, if you want, if you're interested in the bone circle, please get hold of me. Uh, go to my website, bridgetplinclair.com. There is a page for the bone circle, and there's also a contact which tells you a bit more. And there's a contact form at the back. If you fill that in and let me know you're interested in the bone circle, once once it's up and running, I will send it to you. I originally thought I was going to do the whole thing online and have it accessible online, so that you go to a website, pay, and look at videos. But I think this, it needs to be done in person. So I. I probably will end up doing it as live Zoom sessions. Um, but I want to restructure it. I need to restructure it. And that takes time. And yeah. <laughs> with book launches and another book in the offing, because this is part of a trilogy, um, I kind of need a bit more time. But um, I want to do it because I've got a lot of people who've already trained with me who want to train again. Because it's one of those things you can dive deeper every time you train. Yeah. So they're nagging me now. Come on, Bridget, when are you going to do the bone circle again? And I've got a, a, quite a waiting list of people who are going, come on, come on. So I do need to get it done. And please do have a look. It will be coming soon. Good. It will be Bridget, worth the wait. Claire, thank <laughs> you for adding your 10 best spiritual books to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's library of recommendations. Thank you, Sandy, for having me and allowing me to add the 10 books. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting about them this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Bridget's book, Red Dress, is published by John Hunt Publishing. You can get it on Amazon and other online stores, as well as probably some books and mortar stores as well, bricks and mortar. And for more information about Bridget and her work and the Bone Circle, visit BridgetFinclair.com. Thanks for joining us this week. You can see previous videos in this series on our YouTube channel, as well as on the video page at the No BS Spiritual Book Club, where you can also sign up for our newsletter and be the first to know who's coming next. That's it for this week. Um, I hope you'll join me again at the same time next week for another episode of the No BS Spiritual Book Club's face-to-face -face with live streaming video series. Till then, it's goodbye from me.